RAC's post-op podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. Full-time education and training doesn't suit everyone. An increasing number of surgical trainees are taking advantage of flexible training while pursuing other interests. An advocate for flexible training is Mr Robert Whitfield, a staff specialist surgeon on the breast, endocrine and surgical oncology unit at the Royal Adelaide Hospital. Chris Ashmore asks Robert why he thinks flexible training works so well. I think it allows trainees to really have a more contemporary work-life balance, I suppose is the words I would use. So I think there's an increasing demand for it in the 21st century. People don't really want to be spending all their time all their spare time at work and doing work-related things anymore and that's just the way of the world and the new millennial generation coming through and those people beyond them. And I think that's inherently a good thing. I think it allows our trainees and then our future students to be a bit more well-rounded. I think we need to encourage interests and activities outside of work for stress management and just so that we have workforce which is more representative of society, you know, people that do interesting things and not just uh, focus on their employment role, which is just one part of who they are. So I think there is a demand for it and flexible training can deliver on that. So people who want to work but also spend some time just raising their family or pursuing a an interest, a hobby of some description or maybe doing research or sports, whatever it is, I think flexible training does allow for that. And uh, look, it's quite good if you just focus on the professional part. Uh, some trainees find it very helpful to enable them to learn to study more effectively because there's only so many hours in a week. And so when they get home from a long day at work, if you're working full time, it can be quite difficult for them to have the time and the mental energy to go and do some study to further their uh, education. And certainly I have a, a flexible trainee on my unit this year and, and she did that last year as well. And she found working week on, week off really allowed her the time to really get the most out of her clinical experiences. She was able to then go and do the necessary more in-depth research and reading around things that she came across. She also had time to then focus on preparing for her exam. And so that would be very difficult to do as a full-time trainee, particularly if you have other responsibilities. And it's also, as I sort of mentioned before, it creates a tacit acknowledgement by the college that we do actually value trainees who are a bit more well-rounded and interesting people, I suppose. And going on from that, I think that if you create the supply, if you create the ability for trainees to do flexible training, then the demand will come. I think that sort of follows on from that. So if, if trainees think that RACS doesn't value it, then they're not really going to put their hand up and say, I want to do it. But if we say, actually, we, we think it's a great idea, you know, we encourage it, more people will actually then say, yes, well, that might be for me for some of my training or this particular year or whatever it is. And so that's what we found in South Australia in particular, I think. In regards to a surgical unit, can a flexible role be effective and budget neutral? I think it certainly can be effective. So in terms of effectiveness, particularly if you have a busy unit where there may be a number of clinical activities going on within the unit simultaneously. So you might have a unit to try and avoid this if possible, but sometimes it's inevitable that you might have a, 
an elective activity of theta list or scope list combined at the same time as a unit being on call and that creates problems and so you can if you have a flexible training if you have more than one training on a unit you can deploy people to more than one activity at a time i think from a budget perspective budget neutrality is achievable and my sort of experience is that if you have a full-time trainee who's working 80 hours a week and having to cover weekends and do ward rounds and that sort of thing on weekends, what you'll find is increasingly with the various workplace conditions and enterprise bargaining agreements that apply across various jurisdictions, the longer trainees work, the more hours they do, the more consecutive days they do, the more penalties there are from a financial point of view. And maybe in times gone past, trainees would just not claim for a lot of what they were doing and maybe they were pressured to do that. But these days, trainees, and rightly so, don't really stand for that. So if they work, they want to be paid for it, and that's fair enough. And so if you do have trainees working a significant amount of hours, then those penalties do start to become a big issue for the budget. And so if you can have two trainees working, there are many ways that you can do flexible training. But for example, if you have a full-time trainee in even if you have the same number of hours that they do, you have two people do it, then often that will actually be a lot less of an issue for the budget than if you have one person doing the same number of hours. So I think it can be very budget neutral or even advantageous from a budget point of view. That should be one of the goals of setting up this sort of thing is to use your resources more effectively. Mm. Well, if somebody is looking to set up a flexible training role, what's your advice? What do you advise? I think it's important to do your research and to think, well, what are the requirements of the role? And that's really someone who's a unit supervisor who's thinking about this needs to be cognizant of the training accreditation requirements for posts. They would need to have a look at what are the necessary components of a role, how many clinics people have to do, what sort of on-call commitments should they be doing, how much exposure to case volume, that sort of thing. So you need to set up the role so that you know that it's going to meet accreditation requirements. Otherwise, um, you're never going to be able to get it accredited for that post. I think you need to bear that in mind first and foremost, and then really be persistent because it has been in the past a lot of uh, pushback from various quarters. Traditionally, the view is that you know you have to train full time and you can't train part time and or in a flexible way. That's thinking's moving on, thank God, but I think that you will run into roadblocks along the way and so you need to be persistent and really have the motivation to see it through to the end. What I think we've found in South Australia is we encourage units who are thinking about it to design the role and then do a road test. So put a non-accredited trainee, for example, in that role for a year or two years so that you can iron out the uh, all the little problems that may occur and you can see how it works in practice and then when you're getting to the point where you're applying for accreditation for that role from your local subspecialist society or training committee then you can say look we've had a not accredited training in this position this is what they've done this is their logbook this is how many patients they saw in clinic this is what they got to do and then you'll find it much easier to tick the box in terms of getting that over the line from a accreditation point of view. But the key is really knowing what the requirements are and then designing your role to fit that. Do you think it matters at all what motivates a trainee to seek out a flexible training role? Personally, I don't really think it matters at all. We've talked about what are some of the things that are advantageous for flexible training positions. 
my sort of philosophy as the current chair of the South Australian um, NT training committee is if someone requests it, I don't ask too many questions. I think they shouldn't really have to justify why they want to do it. I think if they want to do it, that's great. And I think in the society contemporary workplaces, that should be available if people want it and their motivations are their own. So you know, if someone just wants to work in a little less frantic, hectic way for for a year, that's fine with me. I don't really, we don't require them to demonstrate what they've been doing with their time away from work. That's really up to them. Well, what are the keys to making flexible training work well? You need buy-in from the trainees. And I think that usually comes with the request. So what we found in our experience is making sure that they do get a good training experience. I mean, that's really the bottom line is that you don't want to create a role which is unsuitable because they don't get to do enough. So you need to make sure that, first and foremost, the educational experience you're providing is as good as you can make it. So that really means, as much as possible, trying to quarantine activities for that trainee, which is no different to any other trainee, really. Many surgical units will have more than one trainee, whether that's a post-fellowship trainee and a set trainee. So you've got to balance the workload to make sure that those people get the necessary experience to develop their own skills and it's the same with flexible trainees and so if at all possible you don't want them to be competing with other trainees on my unit at the Royal Adelaide we have a full-time training and we have a flexible training we've had that for over 10 years and for all of that time we've been very careful to make sure that we don't have them competing against each other so we have you know, theatre lists, clinic for the full-time trainee and others for the flexible trainee. They each get to do on call. They each get to see new patients. They each get to give presentations and get exposure to research opportunities. And so it's really, you don't want them to try to take work away from each other. And it's important that it's not seen to be a super numerary role. You really want to make sure that the trainee is part of the team and they're important and crucial, really critical to the function of the unit. So they're really an important part of the cog in the machine. So trainees will know if their role is not valued. So that's important. You also need to get buy-in. Generally, units that are looking at this are sold on the idea already, but you need to get support from the other units in your hospital and administration in particular. You see the people that are pushing it and people who are interested in it need to be able to make a cogent argument for why it's important. Certainly we've found that the administrators are very keen to be seen to be doing this sort of thing. We've found this this year, so they're actually a very good source of support for us. And so if you can involve them in the proposals, look, this is what we want to do, the CEO and the executive are invariably helpful in, in leaning on people to make things happen if that's what needs to happen. So I think that can be useful as well. Well, final question, Robert. How can surgical units manage supply and demand for flexible training posts? That can be a challenge because the systems are really designed and the assumption is that people will get onto a training program and they'll work full-time for four years or five years or whatever it is and then they'll leave and then someone else will come in. And so when you are offering a flexible approach, some people may want to do one or two years or the whole four or five years as in a less than full-time capacity and some years there'll be an even number of people who are requesting it and other years there'll be an odd number. And so from an allocation point of view, if you're a, a supervisor or you know, it's particularly a hub supervisor or a um, state sort of supervisor and you're looking at where to put people, then for even numbers of trainees, 
then job sharing arrangements work well. So if you can go to your units and say, look, how many of these positions could be theoretically used in a job sharing way? So whether that's part of the week for two trainees, one trainee doing part of the other trainee doing the rest of the week, or whether it's a one week on, one week off. So there possibly most units should be able to support that kind of arrangement if the timetables allow that. So there's regular activities throughout the whole two or four week cycle. So if there's an odd number of people doing flexible training, then job sharing may not be as feasible because you won't necessarily have within the trainee group that can do the other half of the job sharing. And so that's where there's an advantage to having standalone flexible training positions. So positions where the role is designed for someone to be there part of the time. So whether that's 25 hours or whatever a week, that allows you as a training organisation to facilitate the supply of the demand in any given year. From a, I guess, a surgical unit point of view, if you have a flexible training position, it really only applies, I guess, to the standalone posts. Because if you're a unit and you have a full-time post, generally speaking, you'll get a trainee allocated to you. If you have a standalone flexible training position, in any given year, you may not be given a trainee because there may not be the demand for it or there might be an even number of people wanting to do it and so they'll job share somewhere else. That's really a problem because if your training committee says to you, look, next year we don't have anyone to put into your flexible post, invariably you'll get lots of interest and applications from non-accredited trainees, people who are in their PGY 3, 4, who are looking to get on to training in the future. So there's usually quite a lot of demand for those positions from that pool because it allows them to work in a position which has been accredited for training so they know it's a good education experience but also they get that opportunity to spend some time doing research or doing the things that they need to do to make themselves more well-rounded to flesh out their CV and give them a better chance of actually getting onto training. So that's certainly been our experience on my unit where we've had a part-time, less than full-time position which is six I think it is so some years we have credit trainees slotting in there other years we don't but we never have a shortage of people applying to do that job so the ebb and flow of demand I really don't see it as a problem. Mr Robert Whitfield. RAC's post-op podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation the Bongiorno National Network the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. You can reach the Bongiorno National Network on plus 613 9863 3111.